you know, we are all born with more or less the same potential, the same human potential. And our life story is nothing but opportunities of, of converting these potentials into skills. And the more skills you have, the better life, the higher quality of life, and the better engagement with life you will be. And, and, and I think education is what really provides you with the best chance of converting those potentials into skills and enhancing the quality of life. That was some insight from my guest today. Before we jump into our full conversation, let's take some questions from a few of our listeners. How do I know someone has trauma? Psychological and emotional trauma is not super difficult to detect. Everyone in their lifetime is going to suffer trauma. Trauma is based on being in an experience that causes distressing emotion that is unable to be escaped. Some people will experience it being in a house with parents who don't get along. Some people were bullied. Some people saw the death of another. It could even be through another source. I know when I watched Marley and me, I was traumatized when that poor dog was put down and Owen Wilson was talking to the dog before it was euthanized. That caused trauma. Even though I knew that the dog was acting, Owen Wilson was acting, and the movie was just a movie. I could even suffer trauma just like anyone else by hearing a story of another and not even seeing it. So we all have trauma. When we're identifying trauma, we really want to look to see what effects or what manifestation are people suffering that might be from the trauma. Some people are commonly negative. They're overreactive. They become hypervigilant or they're suspicious or their moods fluctuate, go back and forth. And if we feel that we have identified something, someone who might suffer trauma, we want to make sure that we work with them to try to get them the help that they need. Second question. I've been suffering from insomnia my whole life and recently got a medical marijuana card, and it's helped out a lot. Any more natural remedies for insomnia I should be considering? For people suffering from any type of insult, even insomnia, I highly recommend getting Neurolabs or sophisticated blood work. Neurolabs can be achieved by finding a vendor from Sinesco International or Great Plains Laboratories. On either of those websites, they'll let you know and indicate what vendors can run Neurolabs for you so you can find out what might be contributing or causing your insomnia. Next, I highly recommend magnesium glycinate. Magnesium glycinate is a great sleep aid as 80% of all Americans are low in magnesium. Magnesium is a precursor to restful sleep. Lastly, there are two supplements you can get from BrainMD. One is called restful sleep and another is called put me to sleep. Either of these supplements can be helpful in gaining all five stages of restful sleep. Thanks to those of you who've submitted questions to us on social media. Keep sending us questions at Dr. Buzzminjan, and I'll keep answering them for you. I'm excited to introduce today's guests, both Dr. Marta Moreno and Dr. Alayar Kangaroo. Both doctors are joining us today to discuss and describe the technology they developed to improve mental and physical health. 
Dr. Marta Moreno started her studies in Spain, where she earned her first PhD at Madrid Complutense University in 2007. From there, she discovered her interest in clinical psychiatry and neuroscience, which led her to earn her second PhD at UCM School of Philosophy. After earning her second PhD, she was awarded a postdoctoral research fellowship grant by the Foundation for Brain and Mind in Spain, which brought her to Columbia University to be trained in non-invasive brain stimulation techniques and neuroimaging. She continues to research and write prestigious journals and is currently holding appointment as an assistant professor at Columbia University and Stony Brook University. Dr. Kangerloo is the director of the Physics and Engineering Group at NYSPI MRI Research and is an associate professor of neurobiology at the Department of Psychiatry. Before his journey in New York City, Dr. Kangerloo earned his master's and PhD from the University of Missouri. I'm keeping both their introductions light and short because I want them to be able to tell you about their incredible journey and research in changing today's science in mental and physical health. So with that being said, I want to thank Doc and Doc for being here with us on this beautiful podcast because we would we want to share to the world, you know, it's information of interest that you guys have either created or discovered, this is what we want to know, that really is going to change the forefront of maybe mental and physical health. Am I saying that? Am I going in the right direction with that? I think you are. I think you are. I, uh, you know, let me let me say a few words about myself. I'm actually a physicist. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just a physicist, a lowly physicist. You know, I uh, I'm interested in uh, the interface between physics and medicine. I'm interested in bringing physics laws into medicine and seeing how physics can help medicine. In this particular case, we're talking about psychiatry. Psychiatry is the probably, in my view, the most challenging branch of medicine. Why? Because while the rest of the medicine deals with structure, the heart, the lung, the liver, the kidney, the prostate, you know, and so on, the psychiatry actually deals with the, it's only a function of a, a, a body organ, which is the brain. And the function of the brain is the mind, and psychiatry is called mental disorder, right? Correct. So that, that's, why, that's why, so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in imaging, in being able to take pictures from inside the objects, right? I mean, taking pictures from inside the object is a very challenging thing. One of the technologies that can help us to take pictures from inside the object is MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. I'm interested in MRI. I'm interested in the physics of MRI, how MRI works, and how it can help us to take better pictures from inside inside objects. You know, the same way that your cell phone, every time, every couple of years, you buy a cell phone that has a more powerful camera, right? The yeah. camera on your cell phone this year, compared to a couple of years ago, has more pixels. Yes. It used yeah. to be two pixel and two megapixel, 10 megapixel, 20 megapixel. So the finer pic- images you can take from objects, the more details you'd be able to acquire. And that is extremely valuable when it comes to the brain. But that's just the story of the structure. What about the function of the brain that is the mind, right? 
that is where things really go extremely more even interesting. So the mind is really the function of the brain. Your brain is really a big electric power factory. I mean, if you, if you drill holes in your brain, you see no light, you hear no sound, you don't see any indication of taste, nothing except electrical signals shuffling back and forth between front and the back, left and the right, and so on. So your brain is an electrical device that has learned how to take reality, pictures of reality, sounds of reality, the touches of reality, the smell of the reality, and assemble the whole thing and build a version of reality in our mind. Now, who is to say that that version of reality that's built in our head, in our mind, has anything to do with the reality, or at least is a faithful copy of the reality? Correct. So, you know, there is a famous saying amongst the psychiatrists, they say, when my hallucination matches your hallucination, it's reality, <laughs> and when it doesn't, I am schizophrenic, right? Right. So, so that, that is a very good saying about this copy in our head, which could be different from the reality that is ongoing. Actually, not that it could be, even among the healthiest people, most probably our copy of the reality in our head is very different from the, the, the reality that's going on in front of our eyes. And, and, then, and then there are those people, those human beings, that certain parts of their brain, at least as far as the jurisdiction of our devices are concerned, we can see what part of their brain is not doing its job, it's not really processing these electrical signals properly, and we've been able to develop a technique that can find those areas and, and, then, and then try to solve, try to remedy those problems, right? So, so we have a common friend and colleague, Dr. Sandalyn Lowe, neuroscientist, psychiatrist. He's just brilliant, and, you know, and, and, I, and I adore him, let alone respect him. But one of the... One of the things he taught me in, in my mentoring with him is, and I always love this theory, philosophy, and, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking you to validate the fact in your perception. He says that the brain is electromagnetic frequency and it's chemistry. And you, you need chemistry to get the magne electromagnetic frequency and you need electromagnetic frequency to have the chemistry. Would you concur? Would you agree with that? function or that definition? Uh, to this state, we have no indication that there is nothing, there is anything more to the brain than electrical signals generated by chemical molecules. Yeah. All right. So, so we're on the same page. So throughout evolution, millions and billions of years of evolution, human brain, and you know, for that matter, the brain of other animals, has been able to assemble this magnificent structure that can generate molecules, the chemical molecules, that these chemical molecules in turn, they can create electrical signals and the interaction of these electrical signals can create an illusion of reality or a picture of reality or a copy of reality. And, and that is what we constitute and what we refer to as our mind. So, so I'm very interested to know how the both of you chose this, you know, this path, you know, to go into this kind of wheelhouse of it's neuroscience, physical science, neurobiology, physics. I mean, you're, you're, you're not suggesting, Hey, person is having 
um, you know, a neuropsychiatric problem, let's just put them on medication um, or let's just counsel them to death. You know, I'm, I've done counseling, cognitive behavioral counseling and a number of different therapies for years. But we, we know when you understand anatomy that some people are not even cognitively available for you when they're very, very ill. So I hate to say we're, you know, at times we're wasting our time, but when we look at treatment, there are, if they're not physically available for you because they're not physically capable, even, even interpreting or perceiving the treatment modalities we're trying to give them, they, they kind of need what you're delivering. So before we go any further into you know, what is your delivering? Like what, what took you down this path? Because it's such an interesting concept that prior to meeting you, I never even heard of it. So, you know, I was fascinated when I was able to see your program and, 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 and all of it. And just, and just think it's so amazing, but what, what, why, why this path? Why not a psychiatrist? Why not just a therapist or, you know, or the layman in the world of mental health? So my interest started in, um, in psychology uh, to study the mind and to understand the problematic of patients uh, through psychoanalysis and so through uh, intellectual work. Uh, but that, as, as you said, sometimes is not available in certain patients and definitely certain patients that are very severe, you cannot really do any of that work. So then I started uh, my emphasis in more neurobiological uh, underlying uh, explanations of the the problematic of the patients, and I uh, then is when I did my second PhD in Spain and my residency in psychiatry, and um, and after I completed my residency and I was able to be exposed to all the uh, the standard clinical care for patients in psychiatry, I realized that uh, we were still doing psychiatry as uh, it was implemented 50 years ago. Uh, so I was very interested in developing new approaches for the treatment of new psychiatry disorders. And I started doing uh, then research. And uh, during the, one of my research fellowships at Columbia, uh, during my residency for four months, then I realized that that is what I was missing, a better understanding of the brain function uh, through neuroimaging techniques and, um, and uh, then uh, new approaches of brain stimulation uh, non-invasively. So I came to United States seven years ago to do my postdoctoral fellowship and I was training neuroimaging uh, and in very sophisticated and state-of-the-art uh, uh, tools uh, for a processing and analysis of the brain function and connectivity. And then is when uh, we started uh, with, I started with Dr. Kangarlu, uh, this path of combining uh, neuroimaging and transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a type of non-invasive brain stimulation uh, for the treatment of neuropsychiatric disorders in order to uh, uh, increase efficacy and really go beyond the standard care of patients uh, as, as they are treated today. And, um, and then we com in the combination of these technologies, we have developed a new approach uh, that uses a functional MRI, specifically rest in a state and task-based, uh, to understand how the brain is working, 
how the, uh, the brain is, uh, uh, the activation of the brain, the connectivity of the brain, how different brain regions forms networks, the integrity of the networks, the interaction between networks, and how that explains the symptomatology the patient is presenting. Because today we understand neuropsychiatric disorders as a network disorder. So we want to really understand what is uh, going on uh, in the network, within the network, between, between the networks, and then isolate the specific brain regions that are not working properly uh, within the network and between networks, and then guide the electromagnetic pulses to those specific brain regions to uh, normalize the pattern of activity and connectivity uh, and bring the patient to uh, a, a more normal life. Man, that, that, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I mean, it's just... It's awesome. It's brilliant. It's fascinating. So in my less sophisticated um, education of what you do, I commonly use my own vernacular of describing a, a client patient and saying this person is less cortically, less, has less cortical function or cerebral function right now because they are very subcortical or limbic function. So they're a lot of times people with trauma or like thalmocortical dysrhythmia and they're just in survivor mode. But, you know, and, and, and I'm trying to break this down. So when the, depending on who's listening, it's, you know, to our presentation. So everyone understands, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it fair to say, cause this is the way I usually say it, but I'm perfectly fine being corrected on the podcast because we're all learning from you guys. Right. So, you have all these neuropathways and a person who is ill, it's kind of like a Darwinian, Darwinian effect where the, you know, the strong survive. So the, the subcortical area, let's say, call it the limbic area, is kind of how people who are mentally ill or suffering some sort of um, emotional illness, they, they, they really are functioning in this really stressed um, survival kind of instinct and even if they're disassociative or they're hearing voices, when some people would say they're schizophrenic or they're delusional or what have you, what we notice about people like that is they're really not all that cognitive available. They're not that cerebrally available. They, they, they can't tap into that cerebral area, the outer portion of the brain and that you know top lobe because the limbic area or the subcortical area has taken over is, is the way I would describe it to some people. And when I watched your technology, I was fascinated. And if I'm saying this and, and not correctly, I'm love to be corrected, but, and I loved in your technology, how you were able to discriminate between those neuropathways of the, let, let me use the layman, thinking brain versus the non-thinking brain or the maybe the autonomic part of the brain. And you are able to kind of set a boundary and discriminate these two areas so that the thinking part of the brain was able to gain a little efficacy, some strength and resilience and almost like kind of recover itself in, in some sort of fashion. I'm, I'm trying to create a visual for everyone because they're hearing this. So they can imagine how this kind of works because everyone who has a relative or patient who is suffering, let's, let's use relative, somebody they know who's suffering with these severe psychiatric problems all know that the people with these psychiatric problems are not sitting down for the most part, reading a book 
or they're absorbed reading books all day, or they're interested in intellectual conversation, et cetera. Most of them have clouded judgment. They're very easily frustrated. They're very emotional. They are willing to do whatever they have to do for what they want immediately. They have a, 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 a an insatiable need for immediate gratification. Their moods fluctuate terribly. They get suspicious. They often feel that people are not on their side. They feel misunderstood. So they're in this survival kind of function or pattern. And it's a shame because, you know, many of them can't work. They can't care for themselves because those executive tools, that area that allows the executive tools to function or flourish are kind of not available to them. How do you, how do you, I'm, I'm probably saying it wrong in the way that you're, you're you know, your science. How, how do we describe what I'm trying to say right now? How does that work? So I would uh, like to uh, describe two main problems that we can see in patients with neuropsychiatric disorders that very well illustrate what you just said. One is this relationship between the, cor the, the cortex and subcortical brain regions. Uh, so we can see uh, pathways that are called top-down because the top, which is the cortical regions, for instance, let's say as an example in depression, the dorsolateral prefrontal uh, 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 gyros or dorsolateral prefrontal cortex uh, is uh, not working properly and uh, there's the, the, the normal brain uh, in that brain region exerts control over the limbic system in order to downregulate uh, the activity of the limbic system. Which, what happens in depression is that since the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is not working properly, the limbic system is hyperactivated. So there's no that control over the limbic system. That's why you express it, it as there's no cortical function on the patient is uh, limbic. Right. Uh, it's because these pathways are broken. They are not working properly. That relationship uh, in which the dorsal, the top is in control of the bottom is not working. Right. Uh, so let me say this to the listeners. So... So if you look at the brain, as Dr. Moreno is saying, that the top part of the brain um, is where your intellectual functioning and processing comes from. And then when you get deeper into the midbrain, you have all these survival mechanisms that even has to do with your autonomic system, respiratory rate, pulse rate, heart rate, etc. But we also have that the fight or flight. We have, you know, other areas that have to do with your endocrine system and how that tries to save you and work off of a lot of different survival reactions or mechanisms. And sadly, you're saying that that part of the brain for people who are, have these challenges kind of gains dominance over the function in general, over the brain in general, correct? Correct. That is one main problem that we can see in patients with neuropsychiatric disorders. And another problem is a network called default mode network, among others. But in this network that also uh, embodied the mid-cortical structures of the brain, uh, is a network that uh, it should be uh, a, um, in a relationship that is negative with tasks, meaning that when the patient is uh, engaged in an attentional network or in a task, uh, this network, the deformer network, is deactivated. 
is down-regulated. So since this mechanism, top-down, bottom-up, are not working properly, this deformal network is over-activated. So it's all the time on and is interfering with the tasks. That's why these patients cannot concentrate, cannot pay attention, cannot yeah. work. Because the deformal network is all the time, and this deformal network is also um, uh, what it holds the identity the, of the of the person, the memories of the past, the projection in the future. It's like the internal activity when the patient is not engaged in any external activity. So these patients tend too much to ruminate, think about the past, the future, and uh, and negative thoughts. So all of the, all of this orchestra among brain networks and brain regions that are not working properly uh, are the underlying uh, neurobiology that explains the symptomatology of the patient. So maybe Dr. Kangalo wants to say something about the hormone network. Look, I can I can put it in a very simple language. So imagine uh, if you compare the human brain with a factory. You know, I I like to you know resemble the human brain to a factory. You know, or uh, you know. Uh, Great American Henry Ford, you know, he invented assembly lines, right? Yeah. For building cars. So why why do you think he he uh, invented assembly line? Because cars are a very complex structures. They have a lot of parts, and in order to build these cars, multiple cars, many many cars in a day, you know, it's very efficient to have all these different parts coming to a factory. And then they go assembled one by one in a very specific order. And the end of at the end of the assembly line, you have a copy of the Ford T model, right? Yes. And the second model and the third copy and the fourth copy, they're identical to the first copy. So the design that goes into the factory is, compare that design with a reality that's in front of our eyes, right? And our brain is trying to copy this reality, just like the Ford was trying to copy the design of its original T model. And uh, but in order to do that in a very fast rate, so that it can create, so you know, we our our eyes can actually take 30 to 60, depending on your age, you can take 30 to 60 pictures, frames of the reality in front of your eyes, and you're constantly shuffling these pictures into your brain and the brain has to accommodate it. It has to really accommodate it on this assembly line of connecting that picture with other realities, you know, the sound and the sight and the, and the color and the smell and the location and the time and all of that. All of that has to be assembled and has to be tagged on that frame. And that is only one of the 30 frames that you are taking per, per, per second. And, and that's, that's an amazing capability that, you know, our, our manufacturing uh, factory, you know, in our brain has. Now imagine that, you know, what could go wrong that this assembly line falls out of pace, you know? If all these different parts, imagine that if a car, you know, a typical car requires probably a few thousand different components that they need to be assembled. And some of the car manufacturing companies, they are assembling those few thousand components in a matter of an hour they can produce a car per hour right yeah so your your brain is even better than that they can our brain can produce a car per with 30 cars per second wow. not 30 copies of reality per second yeah for that matter we, ha we need to make sure that everything arrives at the assembly line at the same time at the right time so that when they when they when the workers need the particular part to go into this 
particular space, they can't wait even for a second. If, if one worker doesn't have the component he needs, the entire assembly line will stop. Right. So when that happens, when one brain region cannot keep its synchronicity, its being in pace with the rest of the brain, even one brain region, the entire assembly line feels different. You know, you can continue ignoring that, that missing part and produce a car, but that car has a missing part and a missing capability. I think we resemble that, the missing part and the missing capability to psychiatric disorders. Depending on what that part is, whether that part has to do with igniting the engine or speeding up the car or brake, you know, or whatever, you know, you could have certain abnormality that could be called depression or OCD or schizophrenia or so on. Correct. So we, so we have developed this technology of taking pictures and making sure that we can find that missing part. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's, you, you were talking, and I would love anyone listening to this to understand, we're talking, and I'm not criticizing the system of care, but this is a, I want everyone to imagine or, or just perceive or think about the difference between sitting down with a doctor who describe, who asks you to describe your symptoms and writes you a medication based on your symptomatology versus someone who is able to non-invasively really look to see what the precursor is of your dysfunction that may be causing these this symptomatology. And then the correction for the precursor is, you know, physical manipulation done with technology and skill and, and data that even supports the growth of the efficacy of improvement or even lack of improvement. It's not working, but we can see versus relying on our patients or clients' testimony, verbal testimony, which I know in my experience, I'll have somebody, you know, I'll see them one week and say, how are things going? Terrible. Everything's bad. It's, nothing you're giving me is right. And meanwhile, everything was great. But today was just a bad day, and they're generalizing that versus you're looking at someone's brain and you can see that the actual brain is recovering physically, neuroanatomically, pathophysiologically, neurobiologically. You can see it and you can anticipate or forecast where the projection or trajectory is of the recovery versus just relying on you know, verbal testimony of, are you feeling this? Yes. Are you feeling this? No. And it's very... You know, it's it's amazing, and I'm not going to go on a tangent about this, but it's amazing how that part of our system of care, for the most part, is so primitive, whereas the rest of the medical world has, has you know, advanced tenfold, thousandfold, millionfold. You know, we, we used to just x-ray broken bones. Now we MRI them. And, you know, anyone that your eyes are bad, you put your head in a device and they measure down to the, to, the, the, to the microcosm of what your eyes can and can't do. And if you had kidney problems or, you know, even my mother had uh, chemotherapy. I mean, they were using all types of technology to check out her kidneys and her, the areas of concern. But yet we sit down with a psychiatric problem and we ask our patient, how do you feel? What do you experience? And within a small period of time, we're recommending interventions we're really having, without having proof of much. 
And I well, lo- no, the, the, the buzzword, no pun intended. Of course here, not. Is <laughs> quantitative. You know, quantitative medicine as opposed to qualitative medicine. Yeah, I love you this. Know, when, you, when you go to your doctor and the burden is on the patient's shoulder to describe the condition, the symptom, the feeling, and there is no other way of helping the patient to make his or her case with the doctor, that is the old medicine, the qualitative medicine. The, the new medicine is quantitative medicine. Let me give you an example. 60 years ago, we didn't know how to measure cholesterol in the human blood, right? Now we know how to measure LDL, um, you know, HDL and triglyceride, three chemicals in the blood that have been, uh, have been associated beyond any shadow of doubt to cardiovascular diseases, right? Yes, that's a, now, good, that's a great example. Exa- so, you know, imagine the world that we couldn't measure this. The, the, cardio- the, wo- the cardiology that was practiced in the world in the absence of ability to measure HDL, LDL, and triglyceride in the human blood is uh, qualitative cardiology. Correct. Today, cardiology is quantitative. If there is any, you know, if any, there is any doubt or any suspicion that you have a history, a family history of cardiovascular diseases, your cardiologist or even your GP will order a series of blood tests. And those blood tests, you know, will give the, the, uh, your GP or your cardiology a set of numbers. Numbers here are important. Yeah. And that is what we mean by quantitative. So what we do with, uh, with fMRI these days, and you know, a lot of groups are using fMRI in neurology, in psychiatry, and fMRI is really uh, this technique that has capability of looking at brain function, the brain activities, and then they can measure the brain activity to the extent that they can connect the re- brain regions that are, that are oscillating, that they're acting exactly at, in pace with another brain region. And then they can connect these brain, these desperate brain regions that are oscillating exactly together. And then we ask ourselves, why are these brain regions oscillating exactly in pace? So, and then we 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 we, we logic and we reason that these regions must be working together. They must be a part of a network. network yeah. That's where the idea of network come from. This way, you know, scientists have been able to build a lot of networks in the brain. And then, and then psychiatry has become the, the science of interaction of these networks. How these networks work together, how when one of them is on, another one is off, or how some of them are on together and off together has, you know, we've been able to catalog, scientists have been able to catalog this and, and build a model, build some prototypes of some models of normal brain and the brain of psychiatric disorders of one type or another. And this is becoming so powerful that, you know, psychiatry is you know, coming to a consensus that psychiatric disorders and mental disorders are really disorders of networks. It's amazing. Amazing. And, you know, and I'm hoping, even with the podcast, but in general, that, you know, you being on the forefront of this and, and, and advocating this and pushing this and educating people on this and let alone treating and resolving people's, you know, serious dilemmas with this, this, these types of illnesses. But this grows and this becomes part of our standard of care because, you know, obviously, 
you know, the way the standard of care is for people with these severe psychiatric conditions is really not working. I mean, it's people are homeless. The hospitals are full. You know, the, re, the, the recovery rate is just not significant enough. And sadly, you know, when I get people, they're all treatment resistant. That's that's my niche. That's my my wheelhouse. And, you know, the average. Here you have to put treatment in quotations. Existing treatment resistant. Correct. Right? Yes. If, if treatment is effective, you should not be Correct. resistant. To right. Treatment. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know how many medicines the people that come to me? I mean, you know, average of we used to run the numbers up until a year ago, but I mean, the average was six to nine medications tried unsuccessful. Two to three hospital visits. You know, inpatient tried unsuccessful. You know, a number of different types of behavioral therapies and tried unsuccessful. And these people are desperate. And I feel for families who have loved ones because then they suffer trauma, not being able to help the ones they love. And everyone falls sick. You know, everyone starts to fall apart. Why? To your point, because we thrive with networks. Just like a household is a network, right? We we thrive in larger numbers. That's that's how we get it done. And your 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 model is a great example of that, quite honestly. I love I, I, I love even the analogous side of that. <laughs> so on another note, how how do you where do you see your model? Like how you know, when you forecast, when you're when you look at your vision um, based on your experience so far in helping patients, I mean, where where do you see this going? Because it's so different, it's so unique. I mean, quite honestly, it's hard to describe because it is different, right? So we're not, even I'm in the field, I'm not used to that. I mean, when I talk about quantitative EEG, which has been around, I mean, most people look at me like, you know, what planet are you from? So when I, we go to, into your, you know, into your spectrum, it's, we're on a, even a whole nother galaxy. So it's fascinating. It's brilliant. It's effective. I mean, it, it to me, it is, you know, there should be no other alternative, right? Everyone should be doing this. But where do you two see this going? Like, what is your goal? And how are you on your path? We started developing this technology in depression uh, for patients that were refractory to any uh, type of treatment, including uh, the standard TMS. I'm going to introduce a little bit the in standard TMS to uh, to compare it with uh, the functional uh, guided MRI TMS that we are uh, implementing. So the standard TMS, uh, it, uh, it uses the device, the same device, uh, sending electromagnetic pulses to the brain, but it's not looking into the brain. So it's placing the coil based on external landmarks that are not taking care of the side or the size of the head the anatomy of the patient, the connectivity or functionality of the brain, uh, the size of the brain regions, uh, the, angli- the angle of the coil. So by when, when they stimulate the brain based on these uh, external landmarks, uh, they are not really guiding uh, the treatment effectively and in a personalized way for the patient that is suffering from depression. So as such, these uh, type of procedures are only effective in, uh, in research in 15% of the cases. Wow. So that is when we ask to ourselves, how can we improve the efficacy of, of this treatment? So we started our research with electroconvulsive therapy, which is an invasive brain stimulation approach. 
and uh, we combine it with imaging in order to see uh, since, since uh, electroconvulsive therapy is the gold standard treatment uh, for depression and is uh, the, right now the, 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 until we arrive to the picture, but uh, it's the, the uh, uh, treatment uh, that you select for patients that are very severe. Uh, we study with the imaging what are the networks involved uh, in the efficacy of electroconvulsive therapy in order to bring those circuits to the uh, table of TMS and to be able to target those circuits with the transcranial magnetic stimulation uh, non-invasively. So that's how we started. So that, just so everyone knows, TMS stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. Exactly. Yes, yeah, correct. and people can Google that and they can learn about it, you know, just in case anyone's never heard of it. Um, but and you'll find a lot on that now. It's that 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 discipline is picking up some speed. So, um, but you, you know, yeah. New York City, California, it's it's not everywhere. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of cultures that are just really antiquated and behind. So it may sound very foreign and. You know, many people have probably never heard of it, so um, we're sensitive to that. So please Google that TMS. So you, so if you're listening, you can learn more about it. And and with your research and everything you're doing, are you finding that this what you know more data on that? Are you are you running studies of your own to support you know what it is that you're doing? Um, you know, is there is there anything that can help? validate the the efficacy the integrity of this type of treatment i mean we run yeah exactly we run a clinical trial uh, uh that was our first clinical trial in depression uh in which we compare standard tms that is non guided by imaging with our imaging guided tms uh, uh, and we were targeting this circuit, I was telling you, that we found uh, was effective in electroconvulsive therapy. So we uh, addressed that circuit in patients that were uh, refractory to standard TMS. And we compared it with uh, uh, naive TMS patients undergoing standard TMS. And we uh, were able to recover all patients. Wow. Uh, the, the sample was small, but it was, um, you know, very, very relevant, the results. And that's wow. how we started this, uh, this pathway. And now we have been able through research because we scan our patients. Uh, we acquire images of our patients uh, pre and post treatment. So we are able to see the changes by stimulating certain regions with certain different type of coils, with different type of frequencies and stimulations. Uh, you can really understand more and more about the brain, because the brain is a big question mark, but now with the tools we have, the technology we have developed, we are really able to understand more and more about neuropsychiatry. And as Dr. Cangarlo was saying, now neuropsychiatry is quantitative. Now we can see inside the brain what's going on and, and fix it. Wow, that that's crazy fascinating. That's amazing. So he compared, to, so, uh, you know, just to, just to put it in very layman's term, standard, TMS and imaging guided TMS, the difference between the two is the difference between the old way of looking for an address. When somebody tells you, you have to go this, you know, when you see a landmark, you turn left. And when you see this other landmark, you turn right. And then you see a red brick building and that's where you want to go. That's the old way of finding an address. The new way is you give the address to your GPS the GPS knows your location, has the exact address of what you enter, and takes you from where you are to where you want to go, basically blindfolded. So that's the difference between standard TMS and uh, imaging guided TMS. That's, that's amazing. So 
I would love for you to give, and most people have a, like, you know, a scenario or a story that's dear to you of somebody you worked with and you don't know, you don't have no names to be given, but just, you know, you had a client, a patient that came in, this is where they were. This is what, this is their history quickly. And then we ran, we used our equipment and the, these are the results we got. Do you have one that sits on your heart that you, that keeps you motivated and pumped up every day because it was just something that you're very passionate about that you could share with everybody? Well, in the context of that clinical trial, you know, this was a few years ago, you know, we had, we had a patient who was very, very sick, and I don't want to elaborate on how sick he was. He uh, had lost his job. He was an accomplished artist of the national scale, and uh, he was bedridden, and he couldn't do his art anymore, and he was... Um, uh, completely dependent on his father to support him. And, uh, and then when the father brought, brought him to our group, you know, through that clinical trial, uh, you know, we, we interviewed him and he qualified for a treatment and we treated him. And in the matter of uh, two months, you know, he's back on his, he was back on his track. He started his profession and now his life is back to normal. And, um, and, you know, the father and son, they were both in the same profession, the same art, artistic profession. And, uh, and you know, every uh, so often, you know, every Christmas, they send us a card and they tell us how their life is being brought back to normal and how thankful they are to this, uh, to this technology. I mean, these are the kind of gratifying things that we get that really keeps us going. And this is in the framework of the clinical trial, but also uh, now we are working with uh, other scientists and psychiatrists in Manhattan in a clinic that is specialized in this type of procedure. So we can see cases as these uh, almost every day. So because right now we expanded this technology to be able to treat other patients with neuropsychiatric disorders. So we are able to treat uh, autism. We're able to treat dementias because this technology uh, is clean in terms of side effects. Uh, it's, uh, it's very safe and uh, it can be implemented in patients of five years old. We have been treated wow. five years old. And also it works with neuroplasticity, so it helps really uh, neuroplastic changes in brains with neurodevelopmental delays or in patients with neurodegenerative disorders like in dementias or in traumatic brain injuries. So uh, as such, since this technology is developed and we can apply to every brain, you look into the brain, you understand what's the, uh, the problematic of the patient, you compare it with healthy brains, uh, matching age and sex of the patient, so you can really isolate the circuitries that are not working properly related to the symptomatology of the patient and then target them with the different coils and frequencies to normalize the pattern of activity and connectivity. And so everyone knows neuroplasticity is the, like the rehabilitation of neuropathways. So we, we can kind of revive them and strengthen them so that they are um, able to develop, you know, uh, efficacy or skill or function again. And then as you're describing, you can even take somebody who is maybe not even impaired and even make them even more skilled almost, you know, right? Because we all have issues, <laughs> right? Really, I mean, you really have that manipulation potential that you can, you can, you can, if you're able to create, you know, efficacy with neuroplasticity, we can, we can make people fantastic or get them to their potential. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. 
that's definitely uh, something that uh, we are exploring as well because as as we know when when kids uh, are born the the brains of kids have a lot of neurons much more than than we do have now but since they those neurons don't don't make connections because they they are not exposed to an environment that force them to make connections then they die so if we create an artificial environment in which we can stimulate those neurons to prevent them to die we will create a new generation of beings that will be much more powerful in terms of cognitive skills how, how many how many I, I i remember studying this years ago how many neuropathways or neurons die daily i mean i know it's a said tens of thousands well you're you're born with 200 billion at the time of birth, I mean, we, we might not have much respect for the newborn babies, but they're, they're, as far as their, their cognitive assets are concerned, the number of neurons, they have twice as much as you and I do. <laughs> yeah. But, but the, the story is not really wow. the number of neurons, it's actually the connections made between these neurons. You know, you know imagine that you know, if in a country you have 10,000 banks, right? If these 10,000 banks, they're not connected together, you know, it's just like having one bank with the capabilities of bank, with the one bank, with the capabilities of one bank to storing money and to serving uh, clients. But if these banks are connected, then, you know, you would be able to transfer money from one place to another. And suddenly the whole overall capability because of the networks between these banks increase. And you know, we have multiple networks of banks in this country. Not every bank is connected to every other bank. Correct. Certain banks, you know, are more connected than other banks. The same thing is true with humans. As you grow up, depending on the environment in which you grow up, how conducive that environment is to education. If you are the son of a very accomplished pianist, concert pianist, yeah. you will be are exposed to music. If you are the son or a daughter of a mathematician, you will be exposed to mathematics and so on and so forth. So, you know, we don't really have a, a lifetime trajectory. Our lifetime trajectories are different. Therefore, our connectivities are different because our connectivity is really like a history book of how we experience life and how conducive our experience was in especially in the uh, in early life in the first few years of life so the more the more children are immersed in 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 learning environment the more connections they will make and later on when they need these connections the capabilities will be there it's amazing what are your what are your goals what do you what do you what, ideally what what do you want what do you well, my, my thing in life is education. I think education is that uh, elixir, that, that, that alchemy that can transfer, uh, you know, it, we, would, we just made a comparison between a baby and an adult. You know, a baby, when he or she is born, is really a piece of meat, you know. Uh, he can't even eat or drink or, you know, properly breathe, you know. Yeah. And depend and you know the nourishment that we provide that baby and that nourishment ultimately falls under the category of education. Yeah. How we educate we can turn a baby into a criminal or a baby into a Nobel Prize winner or a concert pianist or you know an accomplished uh, tennis player, you know. So education is what really can uh, can uh, give us you know, we are all born with more or less the same potential, the same human potential. Sure. 
And our life story is nothing but opportunities of, of converting these potentials into skills. And the more skills you have, the better life, the higher quality of life, and the better engagement with life you will be. And, and, and I think education is what really provides you with the best chance of converting those potentials into skills and enhancing the quality of life. I love that. How about you, Doc? Anything on your end? Yes, I would like to say that uh, uh, our ambition as well is with uh, this technology to bring relief to patients with neuropsychiatric disorders that are desperate, that they are not uh, finding the right treatment. Uh, so here they have a new technology that is really effective. We uh, provide results. Uh, so uh, we are happy and uh, gladly uh, revealing you know, that uh, we are available for patients that needs this type of uh, procedures. Yeah, so I want everyone to know I'm a referral source for this, you know, company service for these two gifted doctors and as well as, you know, taking consideration of their technology and their process. And what I love about, I, I didn't say this to you before and I've been to your center, but what I love about your environment that you work, it's very comfortable it's just so comfortable. Like, you know, you just want to kind of hang out. The colors are great. feels like you're at home and you don't feel like you're in a doctor's office. Um, you have this really organic room, these big TV screens, you know, so it makes people feel like, hey, I mean, it's like watching uh, Sunday football. And, you know, it's, you're, 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 you know, you're communicating with them in a, in a very safe fashion because I know for me, I have, when I get clients, They've been to a million doctors, you know, they sitting in a waiting room is embarrassing for them. It's stressful. It's traumatic. You know, they think that the last guy I sat in his office, he couldn't help me and he sent me to a hospital. You know, it's, it's much different. I mean, your, your whole culture of everything that you stand by and what you've developed and what you deliver is really a, it's a really a, a very organic, holistic, uh, ideology. I mean, it, which I, I don't know if anyone's ever described it that way to you, but I'm being very sincere about that because when I get people like you described this man who was the artist and he was depressed, he, you know, when I get him, he's already been to a number of doctors and he's given up, you know, he's tired and he's exhausted and he doesn't want to hear one more thing about medication. And he's also put on 70 pounds, you know, because either the meds or his, his dysfunctional lifestyle that comes as a manifestation of his his illness has created that. So when I went to your place, I mean, it was really charming. And I just want people who are listening to know very, it feels very safe. It feels very sincere. It feels genuine. Um, you know, these two doctors are kind. They listen. Um, they're respectful they're not looking at their watch to make sure that, you know, you're out at exactly at three o'clock because that's when you are supposed to be done and it's inviting. So you feel, you know, for patients, that's important for people to know that it, it, it feels okay. Like, you know, that there's, this is the place where I need to be. And I, um, <laughs> I think that's important for people to know that. I know I have some issues with some places that I take some of my clients to, and we're looking around trying to find the right, you know, treatment. So the other thing that I love about it is 
it's there's a and I'm saying this respectfully, there's the side of intimacy that goes with it. You know, your conversations are sincere. It's very casual as much as this sounds so futuristic and so scientific. You know, you don't feel like you're not in a so listeners, you're not in this like lab with petri dishes and microscopes, you know, as much as this sounds so scientific, you're really in this very comfortable room that's got great art on the wall and you get to see what they're doing. You're actually watching this stuff on these big screens. So it's almost like a big video game kind of being played while they're doing all this science that is as you're, as you're non-intrusively being manipulated, which is really based on your rehabilitation, you're able to be part of the process, which is, very, very cool. And I can tell you, as a person who uses his words for a living, you know, I have to give homework to the people I work with, and, and it's hard for them, you know? So I do a lot of follow-up. Case management is my my gift, my skill to make sure people are okay and they're following through. But what I love that you do is you're doing it on site. Like, so people who are listening, when you go there, you're in, you're in real time. You know, this is not a take this when you get home and uh, let us know how you do, and we'll see you in three months. It's, hey, you're, we're doing this together. You're going to see how it works. You're going to be part of it, and we'll see you tomorrow. I mean, it's it's really a different – it's such a different model. I mean, it's – I, I got to tell you, I think it's just amazing. So you, you've really done something that's special, and and what you have is, is brilliant. And I hope people grasp this and want to run with it. Because the more that people connect in those networks that they were describing in the brain, people who have and know people who are ill need to network amongst themselves. And that's how we find resources like what we're describing tonight. I mean, this is, this is, um, it's critical that we help each other and we, and we find, you know, what makes the difference. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, if someone wanted to use your service, someone wanted to contact you or learn more about you, could you tell us what your contact information is so people would know where to go? Do you have a website or do you have anything on social media? Do you have an email? What's best? The, right now, the best uh, approach uh, would be the phone number of the uh, uh, clinic, which is called Neurotherapeutics Medical Services. And the phone number for uh, the audience is 917-388-3090. We unfortunately don't have the website ready yet, but will be available uh, within the next month. So as soon as it's available, we will send it to you as well. And listen, I'm going to have you back on another podcast so we can get a little bit deeper because once people hear this, we're ready to take them to the next level. You know, and if we have to do 50 of them, we'll do that as well because this is, it's not, I want, I'm, I'm saying this for the listeners and, and for these two esteemed doctors here. It's, it's, it's not that when someone brings something new in that it's too good to be true or it's witchcraft. It's not the same as conventional standard of care. So, you know, this is something that is, it's, it's responsible, it's safe, and it's respectful. And because it's not what everyone else is delivering, you know, it's just going to sound different and it's going to be hard for people to wrap their minds around that. So I'll have what we'll do another podcast and we'll keep educating people as, you know, Dr. Kangaroo 
had so brilliantly stated that education is the model, right? So people need to understand because when they understand, they invest. So we're going to keep educating together. And I'm going to give that number again, 917-388-3090. And then if you go on drbuzzminjin.com, you will find their information on there. So we'll have them as a resource. So you can also... Go through Dr. Buzz at drbuzzminjin.com for my email. We will get you to this technology one way or another. All you have to be is motivated. So just be motivated. Thank you, both of you. You're amazing. Love you. Appreciate you. Idolize you. We, I could give you all the accolades in the world, but you guys are amazing. And thank you for changing the world one patient at a time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, we'll Love see you. you. Have a see great you. night. Bye-bye.